Hello and welcome to another edition of Podcast from the Edge with me, Peter Bruce. Great to be with you again and to be back with the first guest ever to grace the show back in 2020. Those of you with forensic memories will remember it was Helen Ziller, once leader of the Democratic Alliance, Premier of the Western Cape and after the briefest of retirements, Chair of the DA's Federal Executive, the official opposition's highest decision-making body. I rate Helen Ziller and I've never made any bones about it, even when I think she's done something wrong. In our politics, she plays a vital role. She's a lightning rod for the angry left and often for the right as well. I'm sure most of her colleagues are more than a little nervous when she's around because she doesn't suffer fools, perhaps especially fools like me. Two Sundays ago, I got more than a bitter stick from both Helen and the DA leader, John Steenhazen, for what I thought was a pretty innocent throwaway line in my weekly column for the Sunday Times. The piece was broadly about how hard you have to work in politics if you wanted to get people out on election day to vote for you. My little message, I suppose, at some of the promising political formations that seem to be taking forever to get out of the blocks as real political or electoral contenders. Anyway, as part of this build-up, I wrote the following. After referring to how badly the ANC needed Sora Ramaphosa at the helm if it was going to be even standing by the time the 2024 election comes around. Then I said, quote, the DA has clearly made up its mind not to consciously chase black votes before then blathering on about something else. Both John Steenhazen and Helen Ziller strongly objected, and I still can't really understand why. I write for print, not the internet, where you can drone on forever. I thought I was being pithy and accurate. Fortunately, we have Helen Ziller herself here to put me right, Helen. Yes, I can put you right very quickly, uh, Peter. We go for all votes. We go for blue votes, and that is white people, black people, colored people, people of whatever color you like, who have the same values. And we object very strongly to people of a particular race group being lumped into one package as if they all think the same way and as if they all will be swayed by a particular kind of leader. Black people, just like white people, see politics differently. They are individuals. They have their own perspectives. And if they have blue values, that is, if they believe in democracy, if they believe in the rule of law, if they believe in non-racialism, if they believe in public accountability, then they are blue voters. And whatever their outside color happens to be, we go after them. That's what we want. We don't pigeonhole people into racial categories because that is apartheid thinking. But you used to pigeonhole them, didn't you? I mean, this policy that you're talking about now, this approach you're talking about now, is new. It came about after a conference after the 2019 elections in September, I think, 2020, it was finally held, where you, you adopted a different line. Well, it isn't new. It isn't new. What was new was when we started consciously looking at race and trying to pretend that racial categories are a trump card in politics, and we try to play accordingly. And I have to be very honest and say that was to a very significant extent the consequence of the direction that I took the party in as the leader between 2007 and 2015. Now, obviously, I took the DA forward as a non-racial inclusive party, but I also felt that our core message of non-racialism, the rule of law, a capable state, 
and all the things the DA stands for could perhaps best be conveyed by a black leader. And that is when the consideration of race came into the party and I stood for it and promoted it. And in 2019, we decided that that was not the best formula for an avowedly non-racial party, which we'd always been, and that we would then only look for votes of blue people. Now, blue people can be any color on the outside. That's why we believe it's totally wrong to categorize a whole category of people on a racial basis, and that we would go for all votes of people who share blue values, whatever color they are on the outside. And that is what our commitment is. So so then let me ask you this. And so you say after your conference, and I'm reading a st- from a statement um, uh, from John Steenhuisen on 11th of September 2020, and he says um, that the party is that you've had this conference and you've adopted an economic redress policy that dis- that targets disadvantage rather than race. Importantly, it prioritizes those who su- still suffer and suffer the most, the consequences of past discrimination and exclusion. Why then would you su- would would somebody like me, who suggests you don't consciously chase race anymore? get wrapped on the knuckles like I did. What was it about that comment that I made that made you cross? What was I misrepresenting? Well, the statement that you just quoted John as saying is chalk and cheese from the statement you made. John said we were using disadvantage as the yardstick for our empowerment policies. That's exactly right. We use real disadvantage. The problem of using race is exactly what we've seen It is the use of race to re-empower and advantage people who happen to be black, who may have been empowered many times before and maybe multimillionaires already, but use their blackness to claim additional advantages and additional access to capital flows all the time. And that's precisely the problem of using race as a category. Uh, I, I, I get what you're saying, but all I said was the DA has clearly made up its mind not to consciously chase black votes. That is true. That's what you're just telling us. It's not what I'm telling you, Peter. And this is not about you, and it's not about one sentence in a column that you wrote. I mean, it's quite extraordinary that journalists bash politicians and get us wrong over and over again and misquote us over and over again and when we take exception to one sentence or two sentences that you write, it becomes a huge big deal. This is not a big deal. What is a big deal is to understand where the DA is coming from. And our point of departure is that we chase all votes because no vote has a particular color in the ballot box. We chase all votes of all groups of people who happen to share a certain set of values. And we believe that those values cut across all population groups. Now, when we look at empowerment policies, we say using race as a proxy for disadvantage is no longer appropriate because it results in people who happen to be black, who may already be multi-millionaires, getting into the inside track of all the tenders and contracts and empowerment initiatives to become richer and richer, while those who are really disadvantaged have no access to the politically connected networks. That's what we're saying. And the two are entirely compatible. And isn't there a, isn't there a problem? Because I presume 
that the that the line that 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 I was straddling in my brief reference in the column the other day um, is is something that's going to come up again and again and again. And does it bother you that it comes up again and again? Because while you may be clear in your mind, I thought that genuinely I was being quite reasonably clear in in in, in mind that I wasn't um, saying anything particularly. Um, subversive, you know, of the, of the party's position. I just—it was just a throwaway line. I just assumed that I would more or less write, um, and I'm assuming that a lot of other people will think that too. How do you fix that? I mean, apart from shouting at me, which you haven't, by the way. But <laughs> I haven't shouted at you at all. No, you haven't. No. I'm just saying, perhaps you should do a bit more research before you write throwaway lines. That's all I'm saying. So, for example. We take black votes extremely seriously in the context of the way that we take all votes extremely seriously. And the problem with the line you wrote is that it can be so easily misinterpreted. It can be misinterpreted in the way that people might conclude that we don't want black people to vote for us. Well, of course we want black people to vote for us. And in fact, we're polling very, very well amongst black voters, as it happens, amongst all voters at the moment, amongst all the blue voters many of whom happen to be black. We are interested in votes per se and votes from all people who share the value set of non-racialism, good governance, the rule of law, accountability, and all of the values for which the DA stands. And there are many millions of black people who support those values and whose votes we seek. Right, so you are you you do consciously seek black votes, but you don't you don't you don't base that on policy. You have one policy for everybody for South Africans, kind of thing. In other words, you're not ch you're not chasing. Maybe black votes is the wrong way. You don't you don't chase demographics when you make policy. We do chase black votes, but not on the basis of race. On the basis of policy and principles yeah. and values that black people and white people and people of color and all sorts of people share. We're the party that brings people together around a set of values and principles, around good governance, around the rule of law, around uplifting the poor with real opportunity. All of those issues are blue values and people of any race can be blue people. And how, what do your polls tell you about, about the response of blue blacks, if we could call them that? We measure the blue people, and the polls are telling us that support for blue values, as I've just set them out, is rising very, very pleasingly. Great. After I wrote that quote in the column, I think the next sentence was about whether your approach was going to you know, what kind of position it would win you at the negotiating table after after the elections in 2024. And I wondered if we can talk about coalitions uh, a little. Um, your, your day job, as far as I could make out, involves quite a lot of coalition management. Um, and you run, you're out and about in the country, I know, a lot. What's involved in holding coalitions together, first of all, in making them and in holding them together? I mean, is it always worth it? It's an enormous amount of work, Peter, and it differs from place to place. No coalition is the same as any other coalition. They all have their own dynamics. They all have their own personalities. They all have their own proportions in terms of 
comparative strength of different parties. They all have their own prospects. And that is why one has to be extraordinarily adaptable and go into each context on its own merits. In negotiating coalitions, I always start from this point of view. You will never get an ideal situation for a coalition. And where you have several options of putting together a coalition, it's never a choice between good and bad. It's usually a choice between the least bad and worse. So what we have to do is sit and say, what is the least bad option out of all the options that we face that we can attempt to negotiate, put together, and hold together over time? And it's often very difficult because lots of the scenarios look grim. Nothing looks good. And then do you walk away from it and decide it's not worth it? Or do you decide to make the least bad choice and give it a go, make an attempt at getting it to work? And that's most often what we do. So there's never an ideal scenario for a coalition. How do you organize that at the, the DA? Do you do it all yourself or do you have a, a number of people holding these things together? Because you've got quite a, you've got a lot of them. Well, there's several of us who do coalition negotiations, primarily myself and the deputies, which are Thomas Walters and James Masango and Ashul Sarupan. So those three and myself are on the forefront of doing coalition negotiations. I'm involved in almost all of them. Um, the one in Kwadokuza also had the local KwaZulu-Natal leadership, Dean McPherson, involved as well. But it is a very concentrated amount of work on a few of us, and we have worked till very, very late on successive nights putting these things together. And there's a big one going on at the moment, isn't there, in Port Elizabeth or, or, or Tavecha? What, what is the decide to be current? What is, what is the current situation there? I mean, what, how close are you to, to taking that mayoralty? Well, Nelson Mandela Bay is a very interesting uh, scenario, and all the scenarios with coalitions are unique. But Nelson Mandela Bay has the following scenario. We managed to negotiate a minority coalition that would have had more support than the ANC had the EFF abstained. The EFF, however, is saying that John and I have to negotiate with Julius Malema and their leadership at national level in order for them to abstain or not vote for the ANC. Otherwise, they will vote for the ANC and we will not get into government even on a minority coalition. We are saying, we said before the election, throughout the election campaign and afterwards, that we will not repeat the mistake of 2016 and negotiate deals with the EFF. That was a fatal mistake, and we will not repeat it. So the EFF must do what the EFF must do. They must decide whichever side to vote for or to abstain. We negotiate with the parties with whom we can find some kind of accommodation on a set of principles, values, common objectives for the term of office, and then mechanisms to run the coalition. And with those parties whom we can establish that basis with, 
We will negotiate a coalition, but we will not negotiate with the EFF at national level. That will just push us into a corner. Other parties will say it's a concession that we know that we cannot get into power without accommodating the EFF, which we will not do, because they're an even worse option than the ANC. And we will stand our ground on principle. If it means that we can't take over, then we can't take over. But voters need to finally understand that if they split the opposition vote between scores of tiny parties, they get the ANC. And if they get to a position where taking out the ANC requires a coalition with the EFF or even a negotiated outcome with the EFF, the DA will not negotiate and will not reach common accords with the EFF. That's from now into the future, past 24. Uh, it would apply to the 24 election as well, because I was interested in, in your, your predecessor, James Self, um, in the job you have now, used to advise, and I think I've heard you advise the same, is that you know, coalitions are very difficult to talk about because you don't want to give away your negotiating position or um, you know, show your hand too early in these things. But but you know, by putting a um, a stake in the ground as you have, and I do think myself that it was a big mistake <clears throat> to to allow the impression and not the impression, but actually to get into um, arrangements with the EFF ahead of twenty nineteen. Um, uh, but there's a limit, isn't there, to how much you, you can safely let the public know? Well, it's very safe to let the public know that if they vote DA, they won't get the EFF. Yeah. And that is a very, very clear peg in the ground that we are prepared to put there. The other very clear message, as we've seen in Nelson Mandela Bay, is that when the opposition vote is divided between 11 parties, then the likelihood of some of those tiny parties actually then deciding to go with the ANC is very high, and that splitting the opposition vote often means bringing the ANC back into power. And that is a very clear stake in the ground and a position that we've held for a long time. And Nelson Mandela Bay, the example that you've just raised, but, demonstrates it. But one thing, one thing saying you wouldn't do um, you can give you can give voters the comfort of knowing that you wouldn't be in a government with the EFF. Could you say the same about the ANC? That wouldn't be wise, surely. Well, normally we would say that we're the exact opposite of the ANC. The choice in elections is the DA versus the ANC. The DA is the only party that is big enough to beat the ANC, and we're the only party apart from the ANC that has serious experience of leading governments, and we're the only party that has shown that where we govern, we govern well. So that is the clear choice, ANC or DA. And we've made that clear in election after election, and we've tried to persuade voters not to splinter the opposition vote, which enables the ANC to come in. So that definitely continues to be our position. After the election, we look at the outcome, and as I say, we say, which is the least bad proposition? If all of the options for coalitions are ghastly, we don't mind going into opposition and being the best opposition we can be. We're good at being in government. We're good at being in opposition. And we're not scared of being in opposition. 
We'd rather be a good opposition than a compromised government. But you wouldn't rule out going into coalitions at provincial, even at national level with the ANC? We would rule out making any statements before an election because that can be entirely misinterpreted. And our job going into the election is saying, rather vote for us than the ANC because you can get blue government, which is the best form of government South Africa has yet experienced. Rather vote for the blue so that we can give you values-based government that grows an economy, that gets more jobs, that gets far more people out of poverty, and that builds an economy. And if you vote for the DA, you've got a much better chance of achieving that. That is our message. Clearly received, and but I, you do know, or I'm sure you hear now and again, that there is a there is a kind of an there's an animus towards you know some kind of um, uh, cooperation or coalition between the ANC and the DA simply because you are the two biggest parties. Um, it has a kind of feeling of national unity about it, I suppose, and and um, uh, you know common purpose. The country needs saving. They have some strengths. You have other strengths. Uh, um, it wouldn't be the end of the world to be in government with them. I mean, would it be the end of the world to be a minority partner of in, in an ANC election, in an ANC-run coalition? Well, our experience has been that if you are a minority partner in with a party that doesn't share your values, it's a disaster. Mm. I mean, let's be clear. The ANC wants to be in government to loot. That is as blunt as I can be. They see government as access to capital flows, to tenders, to contracts, to deploying their friends and family into key positions, to extracting all the advantages that out of government that they can. Yeah. We have a completely different approach to being in government. And being a minority partner to the ANC in those contexts makes it very, very difficult to stop them continuing doing what they've always done in government, which is to extract value for themselves and their political network and forgetting about the people. But as I say, in every single situation, you've got to look at what the least worst is. And in some situations, all the options are so bad that you say, sorry, we may be a strong party, we may potentially be a coalition partner, but the outcome is predictably so bad that we would prefer to be in opposition. And so the message to the voters as we go into this election is crystal clear. If you want competent government that delivers on the things that government is supposed to deliver on, there is a clear choice. And it's the only party big enough to beat the ANC and to provide good government. Helen, there's a very important issue going on as we speak um, in our sort of electoral system, and that's the the accommodation somehow uh, of independent candidates in the next election. The Constitutional Court has so has given has directed Parliament to come up with uh, with legislation. The uh, Department of Home Affairs typically has made a complete mess of the of the bill that they put, or maybe not made a com- maybe it's deliberately done to to favour its uh, it, it, the ANC. Um, but the but the issue of independent candidates is important uh, and irritating for you as a large party, I'm sure as well as it is to 
uh, to the ANC. But uh, what 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 what's an, what's the ideal outcome of what's happening now? What we're looking for is some way to democratically and fairly accommodate people who want to stand on their own in a seat um, against the DA, against the ANC, the EFF, whoever it might be. It's an act of considerable courage in some parts of the country, we'll, you know, we would find, and it's not something that one would want to sniff at. Yet, um, no matter how many votes these people might get, you know, the, the, the example I use is, say, a Tuli Madonsela, who's a very popular figure, um, and if she were to stand somewhere, she'd get 300,000 votes or whatever it might, no matter where it was, well, matching where it was, but if she did, but only very few of those would get her a seat. I mean, 40,000 of those would get her a seat and the rest would be completely wasted. Um, how, what, is, what outcome do you want in the DA for this, for this um, amendment to the, uh, to, to, to the, elections, the Electoral Act? What would be the best and most fair, and least, um, you know, least worse outcome? Uh, could I stand as an independent candidate uh, in, you know, in um, in the Overstrand where I live? And what if I what if I beat your candidate? Uh, and uh, you know, would you would you uh, welcome me into Parliament, or would I be? You know, would I just be just another uh, thorn in the flesh and an irritant and a, you know, damage? Uh, I'd be, it would be damage to our democracy. The bigger parties wouldn't be able to do what they want to do. I think you make some very interesting assumptions, Peter, and I don't even know where to begin. I mean, let me start with the assumption that the independents who stand are all going to be of high moral character. Uh, I never said that. I never said uh, Just only one example. I'm just saying, for instance. Well, the examples that you use assume that, right? Right. For instance, it's far more likely, given that this is South Africa and most people see politics as a pathway to accessing the resources of the state, it's far more likely that you get a whole lot of local strongmen, and it's usually strongmen, who see a chance to mobilize a support base where they live, get into parliament and use it to benefit their patronage network or try to use it to benefit their patronage network and get into all sorts of arrangements and alliances to do so. So the notion that people who stand as independents are somehow more morally upright than those who stand for political parties really cannot be sustained at all. So, of course, you're going to get independents elected, and it's good that there can be independent candidates who stand for election and can get elected. But then there's also an unintended consequence that can happen, and that is that you could get a coalition comprising a whole swath of single independent candidates, each of whom could hold the balance of power and who would make a government extremely unstable. And the kind of situation you would have in Nelson Mandela Bay, where about nine parties can bring the government down, nine individual parties, many of whom have only one seat, could bring the government down if they got cross with somebody, could be replicated at the national level. And that would inherently build in such a measure of instability that it would make the country almost ungovernable. Now, that's an extreme scenario, but it could happen if the ANC fell just under 50% and 
and could then make up the balance with a few independent candidates. It would make government extremely unstable. That's why it's very good news in the recent newspaper this weekend that the ANC, according to their own polling, has fallen under 40% of the vote because then you're talking about serious realignment of politics and then you're talking about the serious options for an opposition coalition that excludes the ANC, for example. But obviously it does not include the EFF because we would not accept that. And it makes it very clear that the DA is going to be the anchor of any new alternative coalition. But to assume that independent candidates are all going to be fine, moral, upstanding people and that they will lead to stable and good government that represents the people is absolutely wrong. For every Tuli Maroncela that you mentioned, who's probably unlikely to stand as an independent, but who may, who knows, you might get a crook on the other end of the spectrum who's just looking to get his fingers in the top. There's been a lot of speculation about polls, and as you say, this weekend there was even more. First comes, if I've got my order right, there was an interview I saw with uh, former Institute of Race Relations boss Franz Cronier, who suggested the DA had in fact made up the ground it lost in 2019, I think he meant nationally, and seemed to be suggesting you were putting around 22-23% right now. Then Herman Pretorius, from, also from the Institute of Race Relations, came up with a tweet earlier in the week saying that what he called private polling has the DA in the solid mid-20s, which implies even higher than that. That's, that's 24 to 26. And Action A, uh, respectable in the mid-singles, which uh, made me laugh. Um, then report came out uh, this past Sunday with a poll putting the ANC below 40% uh, and yourselves on a massive 27%. And you're saying to me that that is an ANC poll, I think. Monday arrived and Ipsos had their own poll in the Daily Maverick and it has the ANC at 40, 42% and you at 11%, which I thought was a little absurd. Um, but what do you make of all of this? Who who, who had the, you? Did I hear you say the ANC put itself below 40%? Yes, indeed. The ANC put itself below 40%. For the last two weeks, their own polling has put themselves below 40% at about 38%. So that was, the, was that was that the report story? Yes. That was an ANC poll? An ANC poll of itself. How do you know? There that? was another poll they referred to in which they put the DA at 27%. Okay. But the ANC polling of itself put itself below 40%. So that's a critical point. So they are seeing what the voters are saying. Ipsos is always yeah. wrong about the DA. Look back to 2011. They got us way, yeah. way wrong. They are always way lower than we actually get. Ipsos polling about the DA is actually yeah. a joke. Helen, can I just ask you, how, 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 how do we know that that 40% number was an ANC number? I'm trying to recall exactly, but I think that they said that in the report newspaper. They said, and I know it is from the ANC, but I think they even said it in the newspaper that the ANC's own polling has got it below 40% for the last two weeks. Okay, I must check. You know, my Afrikaans is not as good as it should be. The evidence seems to be mounting that um, 2024 really is a time for a major change in our politics. You're the, 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 the position of the DA is going to be critical. Um, it's, it's useful that you're doing better than some people think that you are. Um, the, the 27% number that report used, does that sound feasible to you? I mean, for now, you do your own polling. 
every half an hour almost. I mean, you do so much polling all the time. Um, you must know exactly where you where where do you stand at the moment? What is the, where is where where does your polling put the DA? Well, we do do a lot of polling, and our polling is extraordinarily accurate. I mean, it's it's the most accurate always in the country, and our projections are always absolutely within the margin of error and have been for many, many, many years. I would say 27% is very slightly optimistic, but not too much. That's a lot. So we could be looking, you'd be looking at a 25%. You'd be very happy to get 25%. I'm sure, I'm sure if you'd been, you know, offered 25% two years ago um, in 2024, you would have taken it. 20, 25% is a huge amount in a proportional mm. representation system. I mean, when you think that Angela Merkel yeah. was Chancellor of Germany, many, many of the years that she was, they were getting in the in the mid to late 20s of the CD was getting yeah. about that in, in elections, you know, and they were leading yeah. party and she was the Chancellor. In proportional representation yeah. systems, that number is nothing to be sneezed at. We'd obviously like to be stronger, but it is an extraordinary recovery. And when you think that Ipsos and other pollsters were having us around 13, 14 percent in the 2021 election, and we showed them that that was way, way below what we actually got. And now the numbers are climbing nicely. Well, we're very pleased about that. And are you as pessimistic about the ANC vote as they are? Yes, absolutely. I mean, I'm not pessimistic. That's optimistic for me. Do you have them below 40% as well? We have them somewhere, sometimes around 40%, sometimes as high as 42%. But you see, what you've got to factor in is turnout modeling, which we're very good at doing. Yes. And, uh, yeah. and we've also got to factor in a whole lot of differentials that we're very good at doing. Yeah. Okay. Well, um, you answered much more about the polling than I thought you were going to. And I want to stop it there. Well, Helen, um, thank you very much for joining me. Thank you for being so frank. Um, it's lovely to talk to you. And uh, as I say, I really appreciate your, your time today. I appreciate it too. Thank you very much, Peter. And meanwhile, that's all there is from me. And uh, I'll be seeing you next week. It's chilly out there. So I uh, hope you keep safe and warm. Bye-bye.